Well, hey, good morning again. You know, I've never been one to just follow the crowd, even under pressure. That's just not who I am. I also don't like going along with things that just sound right, which is probably one of the reasons why I like this book so much. It's called The Contrarian Guide to Leadership. Uh, it is filled with principles that challenge leaders to question popular narratives about leadership. Let me give you an example. The title of chapter four is You Are What You Read. Now, there's nothing unique about that. Leaders are readers. That's, that's common knowledge. But here's his contrarian take. He spends very little time reading the news. He spends very little time with articles. He spends very little time with the best sellers that are on the rack right now. When he wrote this book, Stephen Sample was the president of the University of Southern California. And having so little time to invest in personal development and having so much at stake in a position as influential as his, he didn't want to fall into the trap of just jumping on the latest bandwagon. He wanted to learn from sources that have stood the test of time. For this reason, he put the Bible on a different shelf altogether from other resources. Let's take a look at an example from the Bible where we can see this timeless wisdom that we find there. If you have your Bible with you, let's open up to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to go and get one right now. Go to uversion.com. They have a free Bible app that's a, a fantastic one. All right, here we go. Galatians. Galatians is a fascinating text. In, in fact, a uh, little fun fact for those of you who've been tuning in throughout this series. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the church in um, Antioch. Paul in Galatians may have been writing to those people who are in opposition to him. This actually might be part of that, that story, which is kind of fun. All right, here we go. Galatians chapter uh, 6, verses 7 through 9 uh, says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. All right, there is a timeless principle there in the, in the scriptures that we can still apply today. I was a country kid, and life on the farm is reality-based. If you sow corn, you don't get cabbage. If you sow peas, you don't get pineapples. And you don't reap anything if you give up too soon. There is no harvest without a lot of sustained effort over time. That's a principle. And it doesn't just apply to farming, does it? It applies to life. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. You reap what you sow is as relevant today as it's ever been. You reap what you sow. It is a timeless principle and it applies to music and athletics and education and business and friendship and marriage and, I would add, racial reconciliation. If you're just joining us, we are in week four of a five-part series on race. And we open this series with a challenge from the Bible itself to be engaged in what it calls the ministry of reconciliation, to be ambassadors for Christ. Now, the reminders 
that there is so much work to be done in this area, the, the reminders are all around us. In fact, one of the places you can see a reminder is our own Minnesota state seal. I'm sure there's different people who interpret these, these symbols differently, but it's hard for me when I look at that seal to not see that the Native American still has a spear and the settler is not very far from his gun. Here's why that stands out to me. When I was a kid, I grew up with a narrative that cowboys were the good guys and the Native Americans were the bad guys. But when I grew older, I began to see through a different lens. I grew up not far from the Prairie Island Indian community. In fact, when I would climb the windmill on the family farm and look to the east, I could see the Prairie Island nuclear power plant. But here's what I didn't know until I grew older. I didn't know that our government built that plant on land that was promised to that tribe without their approval. When I grew older, I also heard about the Trail of Tears, and I read about what happened at Wounded Knee. But no one told me that Minnesota had its own skeletons in its closet, and 38 of them had been buried in a shallow grave not far from where the Vikings used to hold training camp. Did you know that the largest mass execution in U.S. history happened in Mankato, Minnesota? Mankato, Minnesota, 38 Native Americans were hanged at the same time. And even though it was winter, even though it was the day after Christmas, 4,000 people turned out to witness this event. You can look all this on, up online if you Google the Dakota War of 1862. Now, for some of you, that date or that year, 1862, might ring a bell because what other war was going on right then? The Civil War. The same government that was fighting to end slavery in the South hung 38 Native Americans that year in the North. How does this happen? Well, I worked at a church in New Ulm, Minnesota for four years. And about one block away from our church was something they called the Defenders Monument. There was a point in that Dakota War where New Ulm became surrounded, and so they barricaded the city. And about one block from where our church was, at least tradition held, that the women and children huddled in a, in a basement around a powder keg ready to light that thing on fire should the barricades not hold up and the defenses not hold up. But here's the thing about the words on the Defender's Monument. At least this was the case back when I lived there. Those words said nothing about the years and years of complete disregard for native lands and the countless broken promises and the corruption that led members of various Dakota tribes to fight back. The words on that monument left important details out. When our words vilify and demonize people, when we omit the nuance to a narrative and oversimplify a problem, it can lead to war. And in the case of the Dakota War, right here in Minnesota, hundreds of settlers were killed, including women and children. The Dakota tribe was eventually exiled from our state, 
And get this, a bounty of $25 per scalp was placed on them if any were to return. And those 38 bodies that were buried in a shallow grave just outside of Mankato, they were dug up that night under the cover of darkness. And many of the remains appear to have been given to doctors, including Dr. William Mayo, whose sons founded the Mayo Clinic. To this day, I believe only one of those 38 bodies was recovered and reburied by Native Americans. But they might have just recently found a second. I recently read an article about how a Mankato family has been accused of passing one of those bodies down from generation to generation and keeping it on display as a conversation piece in their home. This is why, at least when I look at our Minnesota State Seal, I see unresolved conflict. All right, so what does it mean? What does it mean for us to be reconcilers in a broken world like this? What does it mean to be ambassadors for Christ? Today, what I'd like to do is to talk about a practical way, a very practical way that we can apply that reap what you sow principle. I invite you to write this down too. Our words create worlds. Our words create worlds. If you want to be an ambassador for Christ, Choose your words really carefully and choose your influencers carefully too. In the beginning, God said and there was. And among his creations were people that he created in his image. When our words as his creation and image bearers, when our words are aligned with God's will, all things are possible. Conversely, the further away that our words deviate, or our words, yeah, deviate from his ways, the more we reap a corrupted version of what could be. The reason that we're calling this series Untrenched is that when it comes to conversations about race, people are entrenching. They're entrenching on the political left and the political right. And they're engaging in practices that turn potential allies into adversaries. In a war, words are weaponized. They're used for propaganda purposes. If you want to win a war, you strip all nuance from the narrative and you use words to vilify and to dehumanize your enemy. Does anyone see any of that happening today? All right, here's my challenge. Whose words are you patterning your words after? Whose words are you patterning your words after? We created a suite of resources that you can access at emmanuel.church untrenched. And on that page, there's different sections. One of the sections includes three books by authors that lean right and three books by authors that lean left. This week, I took a look, just for fun, at the copyright dates of those left and right-leaning resources. The copyright date in, that is the oldest in that section is 2017. The uh, three are from 2019, one is from 2020, and one is from 2021. These books that lean right, that lean left, that we're, we're, we're offering up to you here, they are relatively new. 
Only time is going to tell whether or not those perspectives age well. Now, we also included another section on that resource, slash untrenched, <clears throat> that we call Influencers of the Influencers. And we included resources from Martin Luther King Jr. and from Malcolm X. These two voices have been part of the conversation and shaping other influencers for more than half a century. I cannot recommend enough for you to listen to their unfiltered voices. I, I want to invite you, I, you, you can purchase the book, the Malcolm X Autobiography, but I want to encourage you to download it. Get the audio book, the one that is narrated by uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, it is so good. It is gripping. It is absolutely gripping. I, I, I forgot that I wasn't listening to Malcolm X himself. And then, oh, I cannot recommend enough that you get the, the resource we recommend um, uh, in the slash untrench page is this. Where do we go from, from here from Martin Luther King Jr.? But man, this one's so good too. I have a dream. It's his speeches and, and writings. These are amazing, amazing resources. These two men are the influencers to the influencers. So many of today's influencers were influenced by at least one of these two men. Now, here's something I find very, very interesting. Which of the two trenches do they fit into? If you said neither, you're correct. In fact, Malcolm X compared conservatives to growling wolves and liberals to smiling foxes. Here's how he put it in his own words. As a black man runs from the growling wolf, he flees into the open jaws of the smiling fox. One is a wolf, the other is a fox. No matter what, they'll both eat you. Malcolm X and MLK were both born in the 1920s. Both are sons of pastors. Both men were leaders of movements in the civil rights era. Both men called out racial injustice. Both men called upon persons of color to become the best versions of themselves that they possibly could. Both experienced countless threats. Both had their homes set on fire. And both were assassinated at the age of 39. Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated by a white supremacist. Malcolm X was shot and killed by members of the Nation of Islam. They had a lot in common, but they cast two very different visions for the future. Malcolm X, he was aligned with the Nation of Islam and then eventually with a different version of Islam. Martin Luther King Jr. identified as Christian. For Malcolm X, all white people were devils. When it came to Martin Luther King Jr., he believed all people were created equal. For Malcolm X, the goal, since white people were devils, was separation. For Martin Luther King Jr., the goal was for us to become brothers and sisters. And Malcolm X said the way we do this is by any means necessary. And Martin Luther King Jr. had something that he referred to as constructive, nonviolent tension. I'll have more to say about Malcolm X in just a few minutes, but let's start with King. One of the things that absolutely perplexed me back in the spring of 2020 is I went looking for resources and looking at people's bibliography and what are you recommending was how few people were recommending anything by King. It just perplexed me. In fact, just about the only quote that I saw in hundreds and hundreds of pages was this one. A riot is the language of the unheard. Now, I've seen these words quoted multiple times, but here's the thing. 
I almost never see them quoted in context. In context. He's got it in context here. Page 119 of this book. On page 119, he calls riots, in the sentence right before that that, that sentence I just gave you, he calls them self-defeating. In an interview with 60 Minutes on September 27, 1966, he calls riots, quote, socially destructive. He calls violence by people of color both, quote, impractical and, quote, immoral. And he goes as far as to say, if every single person in America turned against nonviolence, he would be a lone voice for it. King's approach, what he did, was brilliant and hard. What his approach was, was to put injustice on display. To contrast those who were clearly wrong with those who were clearly right. And to do it in a way that could not be easily ignored. One of the terms he used was the one I gave earlier, constructive nonviolent tension. It was focused, it caused people to take notice, and it was effective. Take the Montgomery bus boycott. There was discrimination in busing. They said, we're not riding your buses, and it worked. There was the march from Selma to Montgomery. Those images of Alabama state troopers with whips and nightsticks and tear gas attacking peaceful protesters grabbed the heart and the conscience of a nation, including the White House. That August of that year, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Consider how different King's approach was to what we experienced in the spring and summer of 2020. When I was a kid, my dad taught me a valuable lesson on the farm. We were adding onto our house to make space to a growing family. We were adding four bedrooms and a living room and a basement. And I say we, but my dad is the one who knew how to do this. He was doing all the work. And what he would do is he'd get us kids to pitch in as we were able. One of my jobs was to cut the studs for the walls. And every board needed to be the same size. So what my dad did is he helped make sure that I measured the first board right, and then he wrote a P on that board, a P for pattern. And he showed me how if you take that pattern, use the same pattern every time, you're going to get a precise cut. But if you take that pattern, make the cut, and then use the new board as a new pattern, and you repeat that, the further you get from the original, the further you get from what you want, the more off you become. If I may be so bold, isn't this what we're seeing with people like King? On the left, they are getting further and further away from King's passionate commitment and laser focus on constructive, con constructive nonviolence. Now on the right, on the right, they are getting further and further away from King's strong words about urgency and solidarity and looking at the root causes. Similar things could be said about Malcolm X. Now, I didn't know much about Malcolm X until a year ago, and I'm still not a thing close to being an expert. 
I don't agree with his conclusions. But I'll tell you this. After listening to his audiobook, and this might happen to you if you do, I certainly have a lot more empathy than I did going in and even a great deal of respect, at least for the man. His father was likely murdered by whites. His house was burned down by whites. His mother was cheated and institutionalized by whites. He had racist foster parents. The man was brilliant, and yet, when he was a kid, he told his white teacher, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. And you know what that teacher said to this blossoming intellectual talent? He said that N-words, that's, that's not a realistic goal for, for an N-word. Do our words matter? That moment could have put Malcolm X on an entirely different trajectory. He may have been one of the greatest lawyers that our country has ever known. He may have been able to change a number of these laws that he spent a lifetime trying to influence, but instead, Malcolm X continued on a path that led him to the Nation of Islam and its leader, Elijah Muhammad. The Nation of Islam teaches that the white race was the result of a man named Jacob who selectively bred black people to become lighter and lighter skinned and to become better and better at ruling others through evil and through deceit. Jacob began the work and it continued on the island of Patmos for over 6,000 years. And over the centuries, murder and lies became the very nature of these light-skinned people. When these light-skinned people found their way to Africa, they were so destructive that they were forcibly exiled to the area we now call Europe. And there they lived a barbaric life, naked, eating raw meat, living in caves. Moses was said to have tried to civilize them, but he gave up. Now, nothing in Malcolm X's life caused him, as he's hearing these stories, to doubt that whites were anything but devils. And he uses that term, white devils, over and over and over again in his autobiography, in his speeches, in his interviews. It's pretty hard to blame him because that's all he saw. How strongly did he believe there was absolutely nothing good that a white person could offer? Malcolm X used to speak a lot on university campuses. And one visit in particular, a white student, this, this girl, was really impacted deeply. And this happened on one campus. But it impacted her so deep, deeply that she found her way to New York, where, where Malcolm X was based at the time. And she tracked him down, and she came up, and she said, what can I do? What can I do to help your movement? And he looked at this girl, and he said, nothing. Tears began to stream down her face as she walked away. Nothing. There's nothing you can do. The vision that Malcolm X cast, that's not the world that most of us want to live in, but it's consistent. If whiteness is inherently evil, if it's unredeemable, then the only viable option is to separate yourself from it by any means necessary and to build something that's non-white. There's nothing that white people can do to help except to listen, to learn, and to yield their power. I see and I hear visions and versions of this all around us. Here's a quote, direct quote from a diversity trainer. 
I watched this video. The trainer says this to the white audience that she's training. She says, you will always be racist. Y'all are born into a life not to be human. And that's what y'all are taught to do, to be demons. So, in this particular way, all white people are racist. So I just want y'all to know that up front. You'll find examples like this all over. You'll find them on the internet. Many of you have told me it's happening in your conference rooms, at places of work, at schools. If you believe a version of that narrative, then it naturally follows that you'd seek separation from whites, separate spaces. And I shouldn't have been surprised by this, um, but, but, I, but I should have expected it, but I was surprised until I read Malcolm X's book that many influencers today, they're against, left-leaning influencers are against interracial marriage. I didn't expect that, but I guess I should have. It's consistent with that narrative. I see lots, lots of Malcolm X's influence in words that today's influencers are using. But, as is the case with King, I also see that the patterns are getting further and further away from the original. Why do I say that? I say that because Malcolm X was huge on personal responsibility. And he had an extremely strict moral code he was a big believer in education, striving for excellence. He was anti-alcohol and anti-drugs. He even had one of the most successful drug rehabilitation processes anywhere. He also believed in abstinence outside of marriage. He called out other blacks who weren't good role models. I'm seeing less and less of this in the influencers who were influenced by him. If we go back, if we go back, even to the Obama era, which is just a decade ago, we see an emphasis on the importance of personal responsibility. This is from a June 2008 Father's Day message given by then-Senator Barack Obama at the Apostolic Church of God in Chicago. These are his words. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that way too many fathers also are missing from way too many lives and too many homes. Fathers have abandoned their responsibilities instead of like acting like boys instead of men. We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools, and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They're more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. This is from a speech that he gave now to the uh, Democratic National Convention. Go to any inner city neighborhood and folks will tell you the government alone can't teach kids to learn. They know that parents have to teach and that children can't achieve unless we raise the expectations and turn off the television sets and eradicate the slander that says a black youth with a book is acting white. On that last one, I, I bounced that off of um, a couple weeks ago. I talked about uh, this young man, Josue, that I know in Juarez, who's really just this brilliant kid. And I said, have you ever come across something like that? And he just, he literally, his whole body just went, oh, yes, all the time. As he talked about when he would study hard and, and, and try to do really well, people in, of color would say, that's so white. That's so white, they'd say. My friends. Words create worlds. We reap what we sow. What kind of seeds are we sowing? 
when we don't try to bring out the best in every person. Show me a culture that hasn't valued and rewarded excellence in art and music and architecture and cuisine and agriculture and transportation and medicine and technology in the past. Give me a perspective like that today in a restaurant and I'll show you a restaurant you don't want to eat at. I'll show you a store you don't want to shop at. I'll show you a team you don't want to support. I'll show you a hospital that you don't want the ambulance to take you to. Over the last year, I have heard from, I have read, I have watched so many people from every skin tone expressing concern. And I tell you, I joined them as, as a dad. I joined them as someone who's a youth director for how many years? Just so much concern that the words that people are using are vilifying and dehumanizing potential allies. Words are being used to cast a vision of a dream that is so different than the dream that captivated the world when King shared it. As today's influencers drift further and further away from the accumulated wisdom of the past, hear these cautionary words from Galatians chapter 5. These are some of the verses leading up to the passage that we opened with. Verses that remind us that we reap what we sow. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Not only, only, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Friends, all of us, regardless of skin tone, we are pulled towards these things that hurt us, these things that divide us. And we find evidence of that everywhere, in every period of history, in every corner of the planet. There are those who follow the patterns of this world and there are those who are in the process of discovering more and more of what it means to be led by the Spirit. In this broken world, are you ready for some good news? We have direct access to the Word of God. Let me say that again. We have direct access access to the Word of God. We don't have to pattern our lives after other influencers. We have access to the words that change the world. And the good news doesn't stop there. We can receive the Spirit of the Word made flesh. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We can 
see change. We can be changed. We can be transformed more and more and more into the likeness of Christ. And as God changes us, he can use us to change others. Can hearts and minds be changed? Yes. Including people like Malcolm X. Over time, Malcolm X began to see inconsistencies in the nation of Islam. And as he raised concerns about what he saw, they began to threaten him, that they were going to kill him. The very people that he called brothers. In fact, near the end of his autobiography, it's really pretty chilling, if you know what happens, as he says, I think they're going to get me. Which they did. But before that day came, he had a chance to visit Mecca. And that challenged his worldview too as he saw people, not just black people, people of every skin tone brought together by faith instead of divided by it. One of these people was a light-skinned man of influence who used his influence to help him. Just one witness to a better way caused Malcolm X to rethink his perspective to the point in his autobiography, he says out loud, I wish I could go back to that moment with that college girl and do that again. My friends, let us not grow weary in doing good, for we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Are there reminders all around us of how far we have to go? Yes, and... Let's also hold fast to those reminders of how far we've come. There are problems we can solve and there's problems we make progress towards. Let us not allow the fact that we won't end racism to keep us from doing good. In 1776, a declaration was signed with the aspirational goal of creating a different kind of nation, a nation grounded in the self-evident truth that all of us are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. When it became clear that that was not the experience for most people of color within our borders, those who went before us didn't give up. In 1861, Two flags went to war over slavery. Five years later, the Stars and Stripes won. The emancipation of slaves was proclaimed, but injustice evolved. And those who went before us didn't give up. 100 years later, the civil rights era saw landmark legal and legislative breakthroughs to the point where King wrote, and I quote, one phase of the development in the civil rights revolution had come to an end. A major milestone had been reached, but there was still so far to go, and those who went before us didn't give up. We have come so far. Just look at today's movies, today's advertisements, and how they portray our black and brown brothers and sisters in ways that they didn't before. Today, organizations are more intentional than they've ever been when it comes to diversifying their workforce. Today, you can go to any city and find countless churches and nonprofits who are trying to help. Today, 
Asians and Indians are at the top of the charts when it comes to income, when it comes to academics. Today, more and more glass ceilings continue to be shattered, including the glass ceiling of the President of the United States. Evidence for positive change is all around us. Just go to Gallup.com. You'll see for yourself the approval rate today for interracial marriage is 94%. Do you know what it was in 1958 when they first tracked this? Four. Four percent. Do we still have a long way to go? Of course we do. Right now, the torch is in our hands. So, brothers and sisters, let us choose our words and our influencers carefully and let us not grow weary in doing good, for we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Amen? Amen.